it well to center field. Deion Sanders going back to the wall, and it is gone. Bo Jackson over. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the FBAS podcast. Wait a second, you're actually listening to the Infinity Sports podcast. Starting this episode, I guess we'll call this episode one of the Infinity Sports podcast, we have rebranded the FBAS podcast. It's still the same great host, the same great content, we just got a different name. I like these new digs. I like the new logo that Wayne, you actually put together. And the name, I think, was a collaborative, but I really love the direction we're going and the growth we've had. So it really gave us the opportunity to rebrand to who we want to be. Yeah, I agree. I can't thank you enough, Wayne, again. That logo, I love it. You know, I love the gauntlet. I love the idea of all the the sports coming together as one in our show. And I really think it's a good representation of our show because I actually think we're all extremely knowledgeable in every sport. And I think that's pretty rare to see in a group of guys. So I think our show is rare and I think we put out good content and we're here for the name brand and, and for the people. You will be able to find us still on Facebook All Sports as far as Facebook goes. We have rebranded so that the tag on Facebook is at Infinity Sports Podcast. But if you type in FBAS, I think we still come up for that. And speaking of still being called FBAS, the vote for show of the month is still going on. In fact, when this airs, I think there'll be a couple days left and we are well in the lead, but we can always use some more votes to pad the stats. And you would be voting for FBAS. I think on the voting page, it says Facebook All Sports. Absolutely, folks. The fat lady has not sung yet, so let's go ahead and step on their throats. Those other two shows don't stand a chance. Thank you for all your support, everybody. Yeah, most definitely. You know, I know we got a big lead right now, and it may look like we need it. I think we're up at like a 400-vote lead, but every vote counts. Let's keep it going. You know, we just want to keep seeing the support. You know, don't forget to listen to the show Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Again, you can comment and leave your comments. We'd love to hear from them. And yeah, just thanks for tuning in. And going along with the rtfsportsnetwork.com website, one of the new things they've started doing recently is blogs. So if you're big into blogs, now anybody who's ever Googled any topic has pulled up Bleacher Report sometime in their life on Google. Basically, it's the same idea. you got a bunch of people who know about sports, blogging about the sports that they love. I've kind of gone and said, you know, I want to do some more intriguing stories. I want to talk about stories that people may not be as familiar with. And I'm doing that more so than the hot take thing, although I did have my hot take with Wilt Chamberlain being the greatest. Plenty of stats in there to back it up, so don't try to argue. But definitely check out the blog section and, you know, check out all the different articles. Let us know what you think. You can actually comment underneath every blog if you have something you want to say about it. Yeah, Wayne the Machine Gregoire just pumping out the blogs right now. You've had some real hot takes. You've had some real awesome discoveries so far that I've, I've loved to dive into. So keep pumping them out. You've been the leading man as far as blogs go for the RTF Sports Network. So I'm sure Michael is super proud of you. Yeah, definitely. Get on there and check Wayne out. I know he's put out, I think, like three or four of them already. The guy, like Jesse said, is a machine. And he's got great content, guys. He really does have... He actually backs his opinions up with facts. That's that's my favorite part about Wayne. He may go out crazy on a limb with his take, but he's going to have facts to represent it, and it's a good read. So make sure you give it a read. 
Now, one of those blogs I just recently wrote, it is probably my most recent one or my second most recent one. It is called Into the Shadows, and it's all about Ronnie Fields. Now, a lot of our listeners, I'm not sure what the age demographic we have for our listeners, but I am 41 years old. I'm going to be 41 in June, and... 1995 is when Kevin Garnett was drafted into the NBA, first high school player in 20 years to be drafted by the NBA, and he went fifth overall. He had a high school teammate named Ronnie Fields at Farragut Academy in Chicago, who was actually better than he was. And it's just a really tragic story. I know Jesse's looked into it a little bit before reading the blog. Oh, absolutely, Wayne. You know, behind the scenes, we have a group chat that we actually call the Podfathers, and Wayne brought up who he was going to blog about next. And I made a real snarky comment, like, oh, cool, Wayne, let me go Google who this guy is. And I went right into this guy's story, his rise and his fall. We saw some uh, emotional stuff, some physical stuff between his neck injury there where he had to wear the brace. And then furthermore, where he got into some some social uh, sexual harassment, was it, Wayne? So um, he really got into some hot mess after the, the neck injury. So this guy was touted as a, a really st- a superstar on that team with Kevin Garnett. After Garnett left, he led that team in scoring. So a fantastic read, Wayne. I really appreciate you bringing light to this guy that I had never heard about before. Yeah, the big thing is going back to 1996 when he was a senior and heading into that draft before they even had a chance to. He got into the car wreck and he never finished his season. But he was the number two rated high school player in the country behind Kobe Bryant. And there was no doubt that he was going to be a top draft pick. The big thing with him, myth or fact, whatever it is, the big thing with him was his 50-inch vertical. And there's obviously all kinds of stories about that. Somebody said he did a 360 over a seven-footer one game. Somebody talked about him catching alley-oops and literally just jumping over the heads of players. Wayne, does Garnett ever talk about this guy? They do a little bit. I mean, they weren't best friends. They were kind of teammates and friends-ish. But I think once Garnett went pro and Ronnie Fields went his way, they kind of drifted apart. I know that there was, in some of the research I did, they mentioned that they did meet up at a Timberwolves game and they were just chatting like old times and it was fine. But as far as I know, they're not like super tight. They're just kind of, you know, former acquaintances. I mean, the guy was incredible. I admittedly haven't read the piece. I did go ahead and just quickly look up kind of who he was and his story just beforehand. And he's apparently the first sophomore ever to play in the best of the best, the Nike camp. And I mean, that's a huge accomplishment in his senior year that you guys are talking about. 32-12, five assists, four and a half blocks, and four steals a game. Like, are you kidding me? That's insane. Right. And he was playing in the Chicago public school system. He wasn't playing in like New Hampshire or something. Oh, yeah, Wayne. I mean, Chicago has such a lineage of credible players that have jumped from the high school level to the collegiate level and then on into the NBA level. You know, we're talking about Derrick Rose, Anthony Davis, just to name a couple from this more recent generation. But I'm sure you can name uh, some more, you know, you guys. Well, Isaiah Thomas is probably one of the more famous Chicago guys. And they did that whole documentary. It's one of my favorite sports documentaries called Hoop Dreams where they followed Arthur A.G. and William Gates, and both of those guys were in Chicago, and both of them really looked up to Isaiah Thomas. The last thing that I have here on our pre-game notes, we'll call it, because we are going to talk about episodes 9 and 10 of The Last Dance, finishing off the series, but the last thing I really wanted to touch on before we got into that is we mentioned social media on Facebook. Our tag is at Infinity Sports Podcast. If you go on Instagram, we're there as well, at Infinity Sports Podcast. We try to put a bunch of content on there. We let you know when new blogs are out. We put our controversial takes. I just recently posted a picture about my idea for the NBA draft, which Dan hated, or the lottery so it's definitely we're trying to get out there so that more people can hear us and listen to the show dan didn't hate it 
Dan misunderstood what you were saying. I don't disagree with the take on your draft idea. I just think, you know, I I like the idea that bad teams get rewarded. I'm just a fan of that, and I understand the number one pick carries more weight in the NBA. And I'm also a fan of somebody who's not the worst team getting the number one overall pick. But, I mean, that happens a lot now, as it is. The second, third, fourth worst team gets it a lot. I do agree with your point of the teams would have more to play for, which I'm always a fan of. So, you know, we'll get into that more, but I just wanted to clarify that before you called me out on the podcast. Well, folks, uh, I, I want to make sure that you guys actually go to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to find out that the real plan that Wayne has for the NBA draft and what he thinks could be a success. We don't want to give out all the juicy details right here, guys. And maybe it'll be my next blog. I do like, I know Dan was saying he likes you know, when the worst teams are rewarded or when bad teams are rewarded with a pick to try to get better, to try to create parity. And for me, I'm one of those guys who I love dynasties and I love stacked teams. And so one of my favorite lottery stories, I think, is 1992, the Orlando Magic at the number one overall pick. It's Shaquille O'Neal. They actually had a Shaquille O'Neal jersey at the lottery a month before the draft. Like, yeah, hey, this is the guy we're taking. There was no secret about it. And then in 1993, they had just missed the playoffs. They went 41 and 41 missed the playoffs in the East. And so they were into the lottery. They had one combination out of 1,200 and they got the number one pick again. And they took Penny? They took Chris Webber and they traded him for Penny. One of the biggest draft hauls ever because they traded Chris Webber to the Golden State Warriors and Anthony Hardaway and three first round picks went to the Magic. Wow. Well, do we think they were better off? I mean, I know Penny got hurt, but do we think they were better off or do you think they're better off with, with Chris Webber on that team? I think they're better off with Penny. I mean, Penny, they ended up going to the finals, and then they went to the Eastern Conference Finals the year after that, and it was all because of Penny was going to be a superstar if he hadn't gotten hurt. He was just lights out. I agree. He's one of my favorites. Especially back then with the players that Shaq and Chris Webber were. I don't, I'm not sure I saw them being successful in that era with the type of players that they were. Well, in that era is why I think they would have been more successful. In that era, I think two dominant bigs could dominate. I mean, we saw it with Robinson and Duncan, and I know they're the exception, not the rule, because both of them are insanely good players. But, I mean, Chris Webber's arguably a top 10 power forward. You may not see him that way, but a lot of people have him at least in their top 10 power forward list. And then, obviously, Shaq's the dominating force he is. So, I, I don't know. I do agree, though. Penny was just, I mean, he's one of my favorite players of all time. I love Penny Hardaway. I truly think he'd have been one of the absolute all-time greats if he wouldn't have gotten injured. Chris Weber called a timeout they didn't even have. True statement. They did, and it's very unfair, I think, for people to remember him for that because what people should remember is that in that game against North Carolina, who the hell roots for that team, they basically, <laughs> yeah, they basically were losing. They were getting their asses kicked by North Carolina, and Chris Weber single-handedly took on the North Carolina team and brought Michigan back into that game. He scored something like 18 points and had 10 rebounds in the second half. And it just so happened, a bad play where he just, you know, it was just a bad play. It was bad luck, but he really carried that team. And if it wasn't for him, there wouldn't have been a timeout to call because they would have lost by 15. You know, I, I agree with all that, but unfortunately, a moment can define your career. And, you know, unfortunately for Chris Webber, yes, I just mentioned the same breath. I say he was a great player and arguably a top 10 power forward of all time. He still didn't do enough to alleviate that play. And that's just unfortunately what he's always going to be remembered for. Well, speaking of things that are going to be remembered forever, 
We are getting into episodes 9 and 10 of The Last Dance. We're talking about the Chicago Bulls dynasty. We're at the end of it. We're up against the Jazz. We're up against the Pacers. And really, episode 9 kind of starts off with the Bulls and the Pacers, because that's where 8 ended off, as Reggie Miller saying, I think we were the better team in 98. And they go into a whole little thing with Reggie Miller, which I actually loved, the whole thing with Michael Jordan and how when Reggie was like a rookie or his second year, he was talking trash to Jordan about, oh, you're supposed to be Michael Jordan? Who are you? And Jordan just went off in the second half and said, you know, don't talk trash to black Jesus. And he said, after that, I never called him Michael Jordan. I just called him that cat or black cat or black Jesus. Yeah, I never called him his name after that. But the continual flashbacks and the way that they utilized them really did wonders for this documentary. I really think that that's one of the reasons that it stood out and broke so many records. I mean, the virus and the success of that team aside, but the flashbacks and how they really told the entire story of that team and of those people but really it culminated around that 98 season. I'm a big fan of Reggie, honestly. I love his attitude and just, they mentioned it, you know, his confidence was that of an elite scorer and he was an elite scorer. You know, if he got hot and he could hit any shot from any time over anybody and he felt that way, he knew that, you know, and I love that. In that whole little montage of what they do, they show him and Mike go at it and Mike hits him with a clean right cross. And again, this comes back to, honestly, I think if you stand up to Mike and show him you won't be bullied, I think he gets a lot of respect for you, honestly. Yeah, Reggie's scrawny, but he definitely, you know, stood his own. And like you mentioned, I think guys that have done that and have had him back down, guys like Horace, guys like Scotty Bro, guys who haven't backed down to Mike, they actually earn Mike's respect. We got to see Jesse's favorite segment of the entire series, which is iPad Mike, because they show Mike the fight with him and Reggie just having to be pulled apart and being held apart. And Mike is watching this on the iPad and he says, let him go. Don't hold him back. Oh, yeah, he's just a few sips in, but we know this guy, you know, he's continuing to be as brutally honest as possible. And iPad Mike stands above everybody as far as his hysterical takes, his (laughs) just his brutal honesty. It's so rich. Yeah, iPad Mike is savage. He isn't savage. He's savage. He He's a whole different type. But yeah, I mean, that's the altercation I was spoke about earlier. And Reggie came out and said, most people feared Michael Jordan, and rightfully so. And I didn't fear him like the rest of the league did and was able to stand up to Mike. And we saw what happened. He wasn't able to ever actually beat the guy. But again, I mean, just to, you know, have that mentality to not stand down to black Jesus, I really respect. Reggie's got his own 30 for 30. Yeah, against Spike Lee. So it's like Michael Jordan versus the world, Reggie Miller versus a uh, 96-pound director. <laughs> but it was perfect because that really led us into the opening credits, which then goes into the Bulls' 98 Eastern Conference Finals rematch against the Indiana Pacers. And what I didn't realize about it, in my notes here, I put it's Larry Bird's first year as a head coach, and he gets to the Eastern Conference Finals. And I know Larry mentions, like, we thought we had a chance to actually go to the finals and maybe even win the whole thing as his first year as a head coach. And they do go into later when I think the... Pacers win a game and we'll talk about it, but just Bird's stoic, you know, game winning shot. And he's like, yeah, whatever. Like he just, that was his thing. I think when I watched Larry Bird coach, no emotion whatsoever on the sideline. No, I mean, I'm sure he expected it to happen. You know, what year did Bird retire? Do you, do you boys know? 93, I think. Oh, okay. So we had a couple of years between retiring and then actually coaching the team. No, he coached the year right after. Oh, did he? Yeah. I'm fairly certain Larry Bird jumped right into coaching. Well, you're fa- I could be wrong. You're fairly wrong, yeah. It basically, oh, am he, I? Yeah, he retired in like 93, and he, his first year coaching was 98. They said it at the very beginning of the episode. Yep, I'm wrong. Yeah. 
So the Bulls win game one, 85-79. And game two, Michael gets his MVP award. The Bulls win that game. But it was game three. I guess it's really loud in there. They keep showing that blonde lady who's, like, screaming. And I, I don't know. Everyone was, like, crapping on her on Facebook and social media. And I'm like, she's a fan. Like, she wasn't swearing, I don't think, really. She wasn't using racial slurs. She wasn't calling out anybody's family. She's just being a fan and saying, hey, Bulls suck. What's wrong with that? Uh, that's just this day and age, unfortunately, where they like to live in the past. And if something, if somebody did something wrong, outlandish, loud, out of character for what they should have been doing, then they unfortunately, you know, get some unnecessary backlash. And that's social media in a nutshell. Shoot, I, I love that lady. She's my next ex-wife, if you ask me. I mean, I love that passion. It was, I love that shit. That's awesome. So the Pacers win 107-105 in Game 3, but Game 4, according to Bob Costas, is the most memorable game of all because at the end of the game, we get Reggie Miller completely shoving Michael Jordan to the side, hitting a way-off-balance three-pointer, which is still an amazing shot, even though he was open because he was drifting to the right, and it still goes in. And then Jordan, of course, uh, double pumps and almost banks in a shot but misses it. The series goes 2-2. Oh, yeah. I mean, Reggie had, did have a beautiful fadeaway win, like you mentioned. But before that, you know, in that game three that the Pacers win, you need to mention that this boy went 9-15. of He went 4-7 from deep. This was his best game of the series. I mean, that's a totally blatant foul. <laughs> like, that is the biggest push-off I think I've ever seen in a situation like that. But, I mean, you know, in that day and age, they kind of let those things play. And Reggie says in the little cutoff or the little talking head, I was going to put it in the hands of the ref. You know, I'm going to make you make that call. I'm going to get my separation. If you want to blow that whistle and make that call, that's on you. And you kind of got to respect him for that. I don't hate that. And he still has to deliver. Maybe MJ took that inspiration into the next series against the Jazz. Put it in the ref's hands. In the movie Blue Chips, there's a great line that Anthony Hardaway's mom actually says to Nick Nolte when she says, a foul is not a foul unless the referee blows the whistle. In other words, if you punch somebody in the face while they're running the baseline, you didn't foul them. Only if the referee blows his whistle did you foul them. And I think that that's kind of the same scenario here. Is like, I've always played by, I'm going to foul you and foul you and foul you until they start calling it. And as long as they aren't calling it, then I'm not fouling you. No, I think we, we can all agree that that's the way that you should play out on the, the courts and the streets and including the NBA courts. You know, these guys get paid a lot of money and they really should leave it to the officials to make the calls. No, I agree 100%. That's how the game should be played. I mean, there's no other way to really play the game. If it's not called or not seen, it's not a foul. You know, I used to play offensive and defensive line playing football, and I can't tell you how many times, you know, I'd hold, punch, grab, kick, do whatever I got to do. And if it's not called, it's not called. So I 100% agree, man. Sully, after that push-off that Reggie has, we see Jordan take a shot. And, I, you know, I know myself, I'm watching it. I'm wondering if this goes in. What about you, man? Honestly, it looked like it was going. I mean, it was so damn close. More about the push-off, though. When you watch it, you notice how Jordan doesn't react at all. Like, Jordan doesn't turn around to an official. Jordan doesn't point to, doesn't do anything, just goes and plays the game. If that happens in today's age, and granted, I'm actually, I don't hate LeBron like this, but I do think he cries a lot. If LeBron gets shoved like that and it doesn't get called, he spends the next three and a half minutes crying about that call. And I feel like Kobe did the same thing. I remember Kobe, every single shot that he made or missed, it didn't matter. He was running back down the court, slapping his forearm or his wrist, saying, I got fouled. The difference between elite defenders and not elite defenders. 
Well, this basically, they do the flashback again, my favorite, the timeline. We go back to 1997 and we get to see the NBA finals between the Utah Jazz and the Chicago Bulls in 97. And the thing that actually surprised me, the note that I put down here first is a year prior to this. So the Bulls won 72 games. And then in 1997, they get to the finals. They won 69 games. Like That's insane. The record was 69 wins. They broke it one year and they tied it the following year. That's nuts. And again, it's not even the best year if you listen to Michael Wilbon that this Bulls dynasty had. So it puts this dynasty that the Bulls had in different perspective amongst the other NBA dynasties in the history of the game. There's the truth, plain and simple. The thing about the 97 season is Carl Malone gets the MVP award. I know that there's some debate whether or not he deserved it. And when you look at the numbers, I guess he's a deserving guy. Michael Jordan's one of those guys. We talked about it last episode. You could give him the MVP every year because he really is. But Carl Malone had a really good year. And when you put his stats in 97 against Jordan's, it actually looks like he had a better year than Jordan, even though I know Jordan was first team all defense that year. I understand why Carl Malone got the MVP, although Jordan did use that as motivation. Why wouldn't he? Yeah, going back to when we talked about Chuck winning the MVP and now Carl winning the MVP, things that Mike is going to take to use against them on the court. But I do think that both these guys, when we look at the stats and their team impact that year, these guys really did deserve the MVPs that year. See, I disagree. I don't think Chuck did. I do think Carl did in this situation. He has incredibly good numbers, like you mentioned, Wayne. Also, Phil mentions in the episode, they had the number two scoring offense. So they were like putting up a lot of points. It was a lot of highlight reel stuff. Him and John Stockton off that pick and roll. I remember that year in that Jazz team actually pretty well. And it was just a lot of fun to watch that team. You know, they scored a ton of points. They did it in a fun way. It was kind of like a modern offense now. So I think that had a lot to do with Carl Malone winning too. He scored his points and they played in a really high flashy offense. He was efficient. He was, and like you said, the number two scoring offense in the NBA, that actually surprised me because when we think of the Jazz, of course, we think of slow white guys. We think of John Stockton, Jeff Hornacek, Greg Ostertag. We think of the big, fat, you know, Austin Carr, right? And you think, wow, this team was number two in the NBA in scoring offense? Like, I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, Hornacek, you know, actually did some pretty nice numbers in his time with the Jazz, but it it actually surprised me as well, Wayne. You know, this team isn't full of sharpshooters, isn't full of guys who are going to put up volume numbers year after year. So for them to be number two in the league, it is very surprising to me. See, again, I remember that season pretty well. So when I, I granted, I didn't know they were the number two scoring offense, but I actually remember them kind of running up and down the court and Stockton moving the ball really well and Malone flying up and down. And yeah, I know like Hornacek's a white guy, but I mean, I, I remember him moving pretty well. So again, I really enjoyed watching them play basketball. I remember that. Austin Carr's shades, man. Yeah, you were mentioning his shades and I had said that I thought he had the Amare shades, but you said that his were tinted, right? They're like almost like mirror shades. Oh, absolutely. They were like motorcycle helmet shades. They were beautiful. Now, they mentioned that Michael Jordan, they show him, and he mentions Brian Russell, right? And he just shakes his head. He's like, Brian Russell, who we know will come into play in the 98 series. But in 97, he mentions it, and he said that when he was playing baseball, he went and saw John Stockton and Carl Malone when they were practicing at the gym, and he was just talking to them like, hey, guys, what's up? How's it going? He said Brian Russell, who was a rookie at the time, just came up to him and was like, why you quit? You knew I could guard your ass. (laughs) He just made the list. That's right. He made the list. I mean, how are people that stupid with Michael? I don't understand it. I really can't understand why people keep poking the bear. Like, you see what happens every time. 
Yeah, well, and they've been doing it forever. It wasn't just 96 or 97. I remember so many years just people talking trash to him and nobody ever got the message. Like Matumbo, I don't know what year it was, 96, 97, when uh, Matumbo had said, you know, Jordan never dunked on me. He's one of the guys who's never dunked on me. And it was like the very next game, Jordan threw it down on his head and gave him the finger wag. Like, why would you say anything? You know what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't think there's anybody out there that will take anything more personal than MJ. Well, this series certainly showed that. Like, everything is a chip for him. All right, so Michael Jordan hits a buzzer beater game one. It's eerily reminiscent of his last shot in 98. He kind of just goes to the right, crosses it back, pulls up for a, a mid-range jumper and buries it. And it was kind of weird, like a foreshadowing, like end of game one. And then you picture that last shot of his career. Or not his career, but the last shot of his Bulls career. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he's proven that mid-range game is not dead, or at least it should not be. I know the three is worth more than two, but man, was he so efficient and beautiful in that area. He really was. And one of my favorite parts of that whole instance was he came into it and he's like, I knew Brian Russell played on his toes and I could give him a fake one way, cross him over, come back the other way and boom, hit the shot. Like that's how advanced this man was and how in depth his scouting was beforehand. He knew how he could beat you before he even stepped onto the court. So the Bulls win the first two games. The Jazz win the next two games. It's 2-2. We're going into game five in Utah. And since he's your boy, talk to us about what happened next, Jesse. Oh, man. Well, you know, again, I think earlier in the series, it was episode two. We talked a lot of trash about Scottie Pippen having the migraine game. And I think it's tough for MJ to give Scottie that kind of criticism when he ordered himself a full ass pizza and five guys show up. And you can't trust that. You can't trust a pizza that five guys brought to you. Hey, that thing could have mushrooms on it. But he ate that pizza and then, you know, he ended up being up all night. His trainer had him coddled like a baby and MJ decided, you know, hey, I got to go out there and at least be a decoy. I got to go out there and be a silhouette of myself. But in all honesty, that boy put on a show. I am struggling to understand how his team and everybody in that building thought it was okay for him to eat that food, even answer the door with five people standing outside of the hotel room. I wouldn't even, first off, wouldn't even answer the door, wouldn't have eaten the pizza, wouldn't have done anything. So, I mean, the story just sounds odd. But, I mean, if it is true, props to the guy. He could have just been drunk and hung over. God, I don't know. But, I mean, props to the guy. He came out and he bawled. I mean, he bawled out and he dug real deep. I think we've all been there. Granted, obviously, the stakes are much higher for Michael Jordan in the finals. But I think we've all been there where we shouldn't have been playing a game. We were sick. We were ill. And, you know, you, you got to get in there and tough it out for your guys. And I can attest that it's not fun playing in that kind of situation. So I can only imagine what he was going through. I thought you were going to say we've all been there by eating a full pizza by ourselves. I mean, I think the three of us have all been there for sure. I don't think the three of us are shy at eating, so I think the three of us have been there for for three full pizzas for sure. I think the separator between MJ and Scotty in these instances where they do show in the last dance is when Scotty is really ailing, he is really only a decoy. When MJ was shown as ailing, he balled out. I mean, like I mentioned, you know, let's put numbers to my exuberant, you know, adjectives here. MJ in 38 points that game, he had the go ahead three point shot and the Bulls win. So uh, I think, you know, when he was ailing, he rose to that level that he needed to to win that game. And I think in the crunch time moments that we saw in the last dance, we didn't see Scotty do that. I do think it's, you know, probably unfair the way that we see Scotty portrayed in this series. But just to, to shine on this moment, MJ sick and 38 points and the, and the winning shot, Scotty sick. And it's really only a decoy in those moments. 
Well, I think that, and we'll get into it when we get into that game, I think it's completely different having back spasms, which I've had before and are basically crippling, and then being sick. But even then, being as sick as he was, the thing that blew my mind was not just the 38 points, which is amazing, and the go-ahead three-pointer. He played 44 minutes. So before the game, he went to Phil Jackson, and he's like, hey, man, maybe I can just be a decoy and get other guys open. And the dude played 44 minutes. Like, he didn't come out of the game. They mentioned the, the game before. I'm pretty sure he played 46 minutes. So I, he was doing that all series, and they just didn't take his minutes down, even though, like you mentioned, he was insanely sick. And I agree with you. I've had back spasms also. Totally different than being sick. You can't play a sport with back spasms. I mean, mad props to Scotty there. Migraine, too. I, I think a migraine, I don't give his, give him as much credit for. I think you can be a decoy and play through a migraine, depending. I do know some... Other listeners will probably attest that's totally wrong. Migraines are just as debilitating, but I mean, a back issue, I don't think is the same as being sick. The media certainly covered MJ to a huge extent, as we all know. So when that game started, we heard Bob Costas and anybody else talking about how MJ was feeling and, and how little sleep he got and the fact that he had towels and ice on him throughout the game. So I certainly don't believe that Jerry Sloan found out at the end of the game that he was feeling that ill. I believe it, and I think that was a funny quote when he said, did everybody else know he was sick? I guess I was the last one to know. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't know because, again, he's got a game to prepare for. You know, he's not watching Sports Center highlights. He's trying to get his team ready. He's going over playbooks. He's watching film, and he doesn't really have a chance. He gets to the stadium, and maybe Michael looks a little pale during shoot-around, but then the guy plays 44 minutes and scores 38 points. So why would you think he was sick? He didn't play like he was sick. Fuck that. Wayne, you know that's bullshit. You don't think a coach, you just said he's game planning, figuring it. You don't think a coach knows exactly who's sick and, and he didn't participate in the shoot around. So they would have told him that. They would have come and his staff would have come and said, hey, look, Michael wasn't at the shoot around. We're hearing he's sick. You know, the rumors are he's sick. If, if everybody else in the world knows, Jerry fucking Sloan knows. That's horseshit. Sam Smith probably told him. Sam Smith told him? <laughs> Horace Grant told Sam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Horace Grant texted texted Sloan like, "Yo, Michael's I, I spiked Michael's pizza." So they talk about Steve Kerr kind of takes over that role for John Paxson. He comes in Paxson's last year with the Bulls, and he's that guy. He's the three point shooter who, when Michael gets double teamed or Scotty gets double teamed, if you got to swing the ball, Kerr's the guy who's wide open and can knock down the three. And that he did. I think he has like the third or the fourth highest three point percentage in NBA history, something like 46 percent, something insane. I know when he was in college, he shot fifty seven percent from three, just nuts. Sully, you got those quick fingers on Google. I'm pretty sure he's first. Yeah, Steve Kerr's first. Yeah, there you go, first. Yeah, so I mean, even after all that time, that boy, you know, has set a high mark in the career this guy's had from being a, a role player, a key role player on those teams, to being a somewhat dynasty, you know, winning coach with the Warriors. I mean, just an amazing career. And uh, I think we can all agree that we found out something new about Steve Kerr in this documentary. Sully, you, you mentioned in the, the group chat something huge. I had no idea his backstory, and I had no idea his father was murdered and senselessly murdered in the way he was. And honestly, I had no idea how all the good his father did over there and things like that. I mean, obviously, you I would expect to not know those kind of things, but I mean, we all knew Michael Jordan's father was murdered. I, I just find it hard to believe this wasn't a talking point. You know, Steve Kerr mentions that him and Michael never talked about their fathers and never talked about their situation. And I just struggle to figure out how they wouldn't have bonded over that. You know, Wayne, you had mentioned... They probably found it extremely difficult, and I understand that, but I would also find it kind of 
extremely beneficial to find somebody you could confide in and express exactly the way you feel and they know exactly how you feel because it wasn't that he was just murdered it was a senseless like no reason kind of murder and it drove Michael to become stronger and I think it had a huge driving impact on Steve Kerr as well he discussed how he just lost himself in basketball and Michael mentions this way later in in episode I, I believe it's 10 and you need failure to really truly have greatness and I mean that's that's what Steve Kerr got the thing that blew me away about that whole section about Steve Kerr. And this is one of those things that I called BS on was Steve Kerr getting the full scholarship to the University of Arizona. And he said that he wasn't recruited by anyone else. Arizona is a Pac-10 powerhouse. They're a huge university. So to think like you're not recruited by anybody and then out of the blue, you get a full scholarship to a major basketball college. New Hampshire wasn't recruiting this guy. I know he's on the West Coast, but San Jose State, you know, San Diego State, TCU, Texas Tech, Nobody on the West Coast gave this guy a single call or a letter and then out of the blue, full ride to Arizona. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Arizona is certainly can be considered as point guard university. They've put out so many amazing point guards for, at the collegiate level and then into the professional level. So I see what you're saying there, Wayne, where maybe it took the high status of his parents prior to the public slaying of his father to get some pull and to bring him into a college that maybe he wasn't going to go to. Yeah, I don't know. I think his parents had something to do with it. We all know that they were professors. They never say where his mother went to college or taught for that matter. And I'm assuming she probably had some type of professional relationship with somebody there and pulled a string or his father did and pulled a string. Because like you mentioned, that's really odd for a huge powerhouse team to give a kid a scholarship that has zero scholarships anywhere. Now, he made the most of it. I mean, he shoots 57% from three, and he actually goes to the final four. I'm not sure if Arizona won the national championship, but that team had Sean Elliott from the Spurs on there, and I think they went to the final four at least. Did they end up reuniting on the Spurs when Kerr ended up playing for them? No, I think Sean Elliott retired before that. Oh, damn. That would have been a story. But what it leads up to, obviously, is that Steve Kerr going into that game, it's 97, it's the finals, and Michael's looking over at him. He's covering his mouth with a towel, and he's like, Steve, Steve, be ready, because if they double-team me, I'm kicking the ball to you. And Steve's standing up and shouting, I'll be ready, Mike. I'll catch the ball and shoot it. <laughs> Look at me, camera guy. I'm talking to Mike. I know what's going to happen. <laughs> that shit was hilarious. <laughs> he had zero awareness there of what was going on. That was really funny. Yeah, I mean, the fact that MJ, again, isn't just thinking about himself and himself getting those points. He knows what the defense is doing after a game. It was mentioned earlier on in the documentary that it got to a point in that second three-peat that MJ was really playing chess when other players were playing checkers. So when he was on the court there against other teams, he knew what they were going to do, and he was ready for Kerr to shine in that moment like Paxson had before. I like that in the championship rally after they win the championship, Steve Kerr gets to the podium. And he's like, well, I had to bail out Mike again. Yeah, I mean, the only thing worse than his joke were, was his shorts there. He looked like a goofball in that rally. Bro, Steve Kerr's got a ton of personality, man. I'm not going to lie. I like him. I think he'd be cool to hang out with. He's a goofy white boy. I swear to God. They go to the trivia section, our favorite. It says Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen eliminated the most 60-win teams in postseason history. How many? I guess six. What about you guys? I guessed five. I guessed 13. Holy <laughs> Moses. <laughs> I thought they were, had 60 wins. <laughs> I, thought, I thought there were a lot of better teams, I guess. I, I also thought they meant, I didn't know, I, it's not just that season, so I would assume over 
the course of his six championships, they played two 60-win teams a year, and I guess I was wrong. You know what I mean? Sully going hard on the over there with 13. I know, hard over. <laughs> He's like, yeah, back in that day, like eight teams won 60 games. Like, it's fucking impossible to win 60 games. <laughs> <laughs> I no mean, it seemed like it. But it was seven. Seven was the right answer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just a bit off. Yeah. God. <laughs> So see, we go back to the 1998 Game 7 against the Pacers. Only the second time in the Bulls' championship run that they faced a Game 7. So they said Michael had a real warm spot for the security guards. We get that whole thing about how they're kind of following him around and their buddies with him. And I understand that, I guess, if you're Michael Jordan and you don't really have friends, who can you truly trust that actually likes you for who you are? These guys are around him all the time. So it's, you know, by proximity, your friends are just the people who are around you the most, right? Are you shocked that, you know, MJ and Larry, his brother, weren't much closer than they were? Like, we hear from him a little bit in the story, but it's a a much older video from when he was, you know, earlier in his career. But why didn't him and Larry really connect? I'm curious as to why that never really culminated into a relationship, his brother. I mean, they they certainly both could have bonded about the, the same public slang of their father. But the fact that those two weren't able to bond and be close, the fact that MJ had to bond with his security guards more often than not, you know, it does show that he really couldn't connect with people or didn't want to connect with people uh, outside of those security guards, that tight circle he did have. I mean, that's getting deep into Mike's psyche at that point. But, uh, you know, Mike, his brother was never there. You know, even when his dad was there, you don't see his brother around at all. So I don't know. Maybe it's just a thing that the brother didn't want to maybe depend on Mike or felt jealous of Mike or things of that nature. So maybe it was that. It could be a lot of things. You know, I do agree that it's tough for that level of superstar to have people you can trust unless they've been around since day one. And you're not going to have a lot of those guys. And for Michael, it became those security guards and, you know, the one in particular they mentioned. And I I get it. I I don't know if he viewed them as friends per se or more of just mentions like a father-son relationship with Gus and you know how he was just able to talk to him and things like that and so that was probably really needed for Michael you know it's always nice to have people who aren't just yes men in your corner I did think it was funny that before game seven they're sitting in the back of the locker room of security guards Ahmad Rashad who apparently is Mike's best friend as well is hanging out back there and he's like some guys can and some guys can't that's all he says and Michael Jordan says uh, stay away from Scott Burrell you're gonna scare the shit out of him and I thought any chance any chance he has to take a dig at Scott Burrell not just Scott Burrell but I mean you know we saw him poke at Kraus Burrell I mean he's gonna poke at anybody he was a funny character and didn't mind who he was taking shots at whether it was his general manager or his close teammate I love the fact that you're bringing up this Game 7 win because as much as I do love, respect, and defend Michael Jordan and the Bulls, I see what some of these false memes pop around, and I know you're such a big fan of false memes, Wayne, but there's the one of, you know, MJ and Scotty whispering to each other about how they don't know what a Game 7 is, and, you know, we're talking about th- this being the second one amongst their run, so they certainly have to play in them. They're, they're competitive that so much so that they don't need to play in them all too often, but in the LeBron-MJ comparison, that's a meme that I'm pretty sick of seeing. Well, me too. And it's, I think that it's referencing finals, that they never faced a Game 7 in the finals. And even then, I, I still think that's an overrated statistic. I don't care if you face all Game 7s. At the end of the day, it only matters how many you win. So I think that's kind of a stupid thing that they try to, oh, look, Mike's better than LeBron because he didn't play in a Game 7. I'm like, shut up. How many times has he been swept? Jordan? Yeah. Uh, I have no idea. I'd have to go back. And look. Never in the finals, obviously, but I'd have to go back and uh, look at his whole playoff record. Here's an argument for you, LeBron. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Steve Kerr hits a game winner. Or actually, not the game winner. So this is the thing that blew my mind. So there's six minutes to go in the game. The Bulls are down three. They drop a play. Steve Kerr hits a three. And Reggie Miller is like, that was it. That was basically the dagger. Biggest shot of the series. I'm like, it's fucking tied. It's a tie game with six minutes to go. And that's the end. You guys just fucking threw in the towel because they tied it with a three-pointer? I think what it was is the assistance from guys, the role players on the team, it came so sparingly that in a late game moment like that for a three-pointer to get the Bulls close and for MJ to have the game tied, Reggie, a competitive guy in himself that we've spoken about, he knows that, oh no, if that guy's going to hit shots, then we're done. Well, Reggie actually mentions that the real reason they felt like they lost it, they were up three at the time, and MJ and Rick Smiths were going for a jump ball. And obviously, Rick Smiths should win that jump ball. And so Reggie mentions, we get that jump ball, score and go up by five, we feel like we're going to pull away. Well, Rick Smiths wins the jump ball, it goes to, I believe, Scottie Pippen gets the ball, then it gets out to Steve Kerr, and Steve Kerr hits the three, and then boom, they're tied. So they go from probably getting a five-point lead to tied within 20 seconds. So that's what Reggie references when he says that it was done at that point. They just kind of pulled away. They took all the momentum. At that point, we were kind of sucked dry. No, I agree. It's a tie game. You got to find a way to dig deep and and fight at that point. But like they had mentioned, they, they went from the mindset of, okay, we're about to be up five with six minutes left in a game seven to holy shit, it's tied in two and a half seconds. What the fuck just happened? And maybe it's just because I never played at the NBA level, but I just, I've been down five with 40 seconds to go and felt like we were still in the game. It, it just doesn't make sense to me that at a tie game with six minutes, six minutes is 18 lifetimes in the NBA. And with six minutes to go, they were basically like, all right, that's it, man. Wind's out of our sails now. It, it blew my mind that that was like them throwing in the towel. Like, all right, that's tied. Might as well just kind of go home. Yeah, when you're such a sharpshooter, that's just unfathomable to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I can go from a five-point deficit to a one-point lead in, like, eight seconds. Yeah, it's one shot for him. (laughs) 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 Six-pointer. But that's how the episode ends, is with the Bulls winning, and they're going on to the finals, the 98 finals against the Utah Jazz. And that was just my big takeaway from it, is just the the, the whole six minutes left. Especially in New England, we all know when you're down 28-3 to halfway through the third quarter of a Super Bowl, and you win the Super Bowl, like the game's never over. It's not over till it's over, is what Yogi Berra said, right? Shit, not just that, the Boston Bruins... We're down, what was it, four goals or three goals in the game seven in the third period and come back to win that game. Like, you know, you, you never die. You never die until you die. The fat lady ain't singing yet, man. With six minutes left, that's an eternity in the NBA. Episode 10 starts off. We are in the 1998 finals. This is it. This is the curtain closing, and we're seeing the last of the Chicago Bulls. And they start off talking about how Michael is always present. He's always in the moment. He isn't thinking about tomorrow. He isn't thinking about yesterday and what happened. He's always very much right in the moment today. Yeah, this is certainly a sad moment for the documentary. It is the last dance of The Last Dance, being the last episode here. I don't care how corny that is, guys. But yeah, we know that Michael Jordan is not only a physical assassin, but a mental assassin. So he has absolute focus, and he's going to focus on the task at hand and the game at hand. He's not going to look ahead to what already is or could be. So I think it just further emphasizes how this guy was an all-around assassin. It wasn't just what he could do to you on the court, but how he did it mentally as well. I did think it was weird that this is the first time we hear from Jeff, Marcus, and Jasmine Jordan. I was like, where were these guys the rest of the series? 
I mean, you know, it, it is kind of odd that we're seeing them at this part and not actually when they were brought into the world, but I'm sure it was because of this is probably the closest that they actually got to that NBA environment, you know, and, and certainly in, in, in Utah, they talked about how crazy loud and raucous it was. I mean, we talked about somebody poisoned a pizza in the last episode. I would think they didn't appear because, I mean, honestly, I doubt they're very relevant to the story. You know, the basketball story itself. They're obviously young kids, so it makes sense. Neither one of them, as far as Marcus or Jeffrey, amounted to too much in college. Well, I know that Marcus had gotten a full scholarship to, I can't remember. Illinois? No, so Jeff went to Illinois, and Marcus went to, I want to, it wasn't VCU, UCF. it was like Florida International or something like that, and he eventually... Pretty sure it's U- U- UCF. UCF, okay, yeah, yeah, and then he later transferred to Illinois to play with Jeff, but then Jeff dropped off the basketball team. Yeah, those are some hard footsteps to certainly step into. It would have been harder if one of them was named Michael Jordan Jr., now, the Jazz go on. They win the first game of the series, which is crazy. The Jazz take a 1-0 lead on Chicago, and they have home court advantage, which I also thought was crazy. And I don't know what happened in game two. I don't know if I just missed it. Did they even talk about game two, or they just go right from one to three? I'm pretty sure they skipped right to it because of the magnitude of game three as far as the record low points that Utah scored. The final score there was 96 to 54. That's a 42-point discrepancy between those two NBA Finals teams. And Wayne, you touched on earlier how Utah was actually a team that was second in the league in scoring around that time. So that's really embarrassing. I was purely shocked. I had no idea this happened. 54 points in an entire game is fucking nuts. Especially when you're the number two scoring offense in the whole league. You have John Stockton and Carl Malone. And you score 54 points? That's crazy. Carl Malone scored 22 points. 73% field goal percentage in that game. No other Jazz players scored in double digits. Yeah, it's nuts. And I actually, I mean, I play, you know, men's league basketball and I've been on both sides of those 96 to 54 games. Definitely no fun when you're the 54 team. Now, Dennis Rodman, he's a no-show for practice after the game because he went wrestling with Hulk Hogan on WWE. And, you know, they ask him about it and he's like, hey, man, I was just trying to play basketball, you know, party. You know, and I thought, really, this guy did not take it seriously at all. Maybe it was that. That's why it's really the end of his career. I know he plays a little bit after this with a couple of teams, short stints. But maybe at that point in his life, he was just like, I'm done with basketball. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to be a wrestling nerd here, Wayne, but it was actually WCW that Hulk Hogan was at. And there was a bit of a story being told for the wrestling and basketball side of it where Hogan and Dennis Rodman, Rodzilla, as they called him, were going to match up against Diamond Dallas Page, DDP, and Carl Malone. So they were going to meet in the ring, which they did, and on the court. I remember the wrestling side of it. NWO was my my shit, man. I mean, that was just where it was at. Kevin Nash is my dude. You know, I think Dennis Rodman, like you said, I think he had checked out. You know, he's done with basketball. He had made his millions. He was more interested in being a star and a celebrity at that point and not a basketball player. Now, what do you guys think about Game 5? I know the Bulls win Game 4. They go on Game 5. They have a chance to close it out in Chicago, Michael's home, and he misses a game winner. And I thought for all the talk, especially from LeBron haters, that Michael Jordan was the most clutch guy they ever saw, here he has a chance to lock up the series at home in Chicago, and he airballs a jump shot. Oh, it's tough to see anybody on a professional level airball a shot. It's even tougher when it's the guy that you idolized and you tattooed his silhouette to your body. But 
I think for all the clout that this guy gets as being such a, a clutch performer, he himself is quoted. It's a pretty famous quote from him where he says, I miss and miss and miss, and that's what makes me better. So he knows that he's missed in huge opportunities, and I'm sure he used it as that competitive edge to get him to rise to the next level further on in the series. I mean, the guy played an insane amount of minutes every single game. So you got to think in game five, he's just gassed. I mean, a lot of his shots were coming up short at that point. It's hard to blame the guy. You know, he just carried so much of the load. And to his credit, Jordan made a ton of these shots. So to emphasize the ones he missed, you know, I, I think is a little, I don't know, childish, especially when it's an argument when LeBron, I think early in his career, I think it was a true and profound argument that he could not take a clutch shot, didn't want to take a clutch shot, didn't want that moment. I do think he has since changed that and been a lot more welcoming of that pressure moment. However, I still don't think he's in the same class as a Kobe or or a Jordan uh, for that matter. So we see game six, it goes to Salt Lake City. They're going back. They're not Now if they're going to win, they have to do it on the road because game six and seven are under Salt Lake City. And Scottie Pippen goes to the locker room. He's got a, a back issue. And I know that Jesse had alluded to this. You know, we had the migraine. Now we have the back issue. And where I would defend Scottie, and I did earlier, is that back spasms are so crippling. Forget running up and down the court and trying to score and all that nonsense. Like you are literally just trying to stand perfectly straight and not move and not turn your head left or right. It's crippling. And for him to keep coming out, he kept going back in the locker room to do electrolysis and ice on his back. He'd come back out, play for five minutes, go back to the locker room. I'm sorry. I think Scotty's a warrior. Yeah, you know, I, I got to take part of what I said back earlier in the episode because ESPN actually replayed this game in high definition last night at 9 p.m. And it was amazing to see the full aspect of the game. And, you know, Scotty, he started the game. And he went out there and he wasn't just a decoy. You know, he ended up, I think, scoring four of of the Bulls' first 10 points. And then he ended up starting in the second half when they didn't think he'd be able to. We actually got to see that little bit of piece uh, of uh, interview between Phil and Scotty on the sideline there where Phil says, "Are, are you able to start? Can you go in? And even Phil has no idea how beneficial Scotty's going to be, but Scotty does actually put up some points and he's taken some shots uh, in the body. And uh, I'm sure that the Jazz probably could have done more to be physical with Scotty and force him out of that game much earlier. Yeah, I give Scotty bad props. He battled through that. And, and I actually agree with your point, Jesse. I mean, if this is the Pistons team, Scotty doesn't get back in that game. There's no way. Because he knows if he goes back in there, he gets crushed. So, you know, I think the nice personalities of the Carl Malone and the John Stocktons kind of let Scotty get away with one there. Now they go to the trivia before the commercial. And again, trivia says that the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan eliminated 20 Hall of Famers during the postseason. Who did they eliminate the most? So I'm thinking, all right, it's got to be an East Coast player. It's got to be somebody from the Eastern Conference because that's where they would have played the most. I thought Mark Jackson, who played for the Knicks early on and later for the Pacers, and I'm like, I'm going with Mark Jackson. They said it's Patrick Ewing four times. And I was like, Mark Jackson got eliminated more than that. And then I looked it up. I'm like, oh, he wasn't a Hall of Famer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, painful. And, you know, I'm pretty sure he's still top 10 in assists all time. So he may potentially get there, but uh, he's certainly not in the echelon of the guys that are above him in terms of Mark Jackson. But my guess, I I yelled it and it was Patrick Ewing and my mom can defend me. And uh, that's the hill that we're going to die on is I guess Patrick Ewing and I was right. Yeah, I didn't give a guess on this one. This shit's so fast. I fucking hate it. 
Patrick Ewing has taken some lumps in his career. He's one of those guys like him, Chuck, Carl, you really feel for as far as guys that never really got to walk away with the ring, but they had such magnificent careers. Ewing, oh man, I, I saw highlight or low light today of him missing that shot against the Pacers, that layup, and I felt so bad for him. Well, we get to see in the game, Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman, they get tangled up. It looks like they kind of trip each other. And then as they're getting up, they get tripped up again. And they start to get up again and they trip again. And then I think when they get up, it looks like Carl Malone actually drives his shoulder into Rodman's chest and they both go down again. And I don't know if they got called for uh, double technicals or double fouls or whatever it was, but I thought that should have been a flagrant foul on Carl Malone because he literally pile drive Dennis Rodman to the ground. Taking some of these moves from the ring and using them on the court. I don't disagree with you. You know, I think that the double tech is is the right call there, to be honest with you. But, I mean, it it could have been worse for either situation, but they just don't call that shit. Well, they go on to say that the next 41 seconds is the most unbelievable individual effort you'll see in an NBA Finals. I'll still disagree because I still think LeBron back in 16 or whatever it was. But 41 seconds ago, Jordan drives to the hoop, gets a layup with 37 seconds to go. So he's given him that opportunity to get a second chance to go ahead because you got to score fast so you can get that two for one. He does. He scores. Then he comes up from behind Malone, steals the ball from Malone. Then he hits the jumper to go ahead with 5.2 seconds left. So just a huge, I mean, three plays in a row, bang, bang, bang with Michael Jordan. Yeah, and I think the jumper gets the most shine. But to be honest, that layup, it was way too easy for him to be able to do that. It happened exactly the way it needed to for the Bulls' dominoes to to fall in a successful way. And for him to get right to the rack with really no opposition. I mean, if you're thinking of the tall white guys that the Jazz had, you know, and the beefy, stocky Carl Malone, there was nobody around him when he just laid that in and he was ready for, you know, the next play. So... MJ made all this happen. He threw that team on his back in 98, and he was like, yo, we're going to get the sixth title. We talked earlier about fouls, and it ain't fouling somebody unless you make the ref call it. I can tell you right now, if I was playing, I'd have fouled the fuck out of Michael Jordan right there. There's no way he gets that easy of a layup if I'm playing, or if anybody should have been playing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's no way you can just let him walk to the hoop like that. And I agree. I think that's kind of where he lost it. I mean, his awareness to steal the ball from Carl Malone and just know what Carl's about to do and sneak in. I mean, that's so heady. That's so Michael. That's so just a great player. That's what they do. They prepare and they know, you know, I mentioned this before, they know how they're going to beat you before they step on the court. And that's so important. And I just loved seeing that. What do you think about Phil Jackson? I know we talked about way back about him still being the best coach of all time or one of the best coaches of all time saying... I'm not going to call a timeout in that situation, even though I have them, because one, I have the ball in Michael Jordan's hands, and two, I don't want to give the Jazz a chance to talk about what's going to happen and what they're going to do. I just want Michael to improvise and do whatever he does. I think it was the right call. I definitely agree. You can't question Phil Jackson. He's got an amazing career. He's got more rings. He's got fingers as far as being a player and a coach. But this guy is certainly not in the wrong for not wanting to stop the game and for taking the ball out of MJ's hands. MJ knew what he was going to do. Not just that. There were a lot of factors going with that. They had the momentum at the time. The Jazz were clearly on their heels. Michael's driving down their throats, and you could tell he's got his throat on their neck. Like you mentioned, why let them get a chance to reset, 
get their win to them. And I get on offense, you can organize a play and blah, blah, blah. But what play are you going to fucking organize? Get MJ open and get him the ball? Like, he's already got the ball and he can get himself open. So I just think, granted, I think understanding that in the microsecond it takes Phil Jackson and in the situation that he's in for him to instantly run through all that information in his head and decide, okay, best to not call timeout. That's what makes him great. I mean, let's be real. Wayne, it's the same way when Phil was coaching the Lakers. He would be in the wrong for calling a timeout when Kobe has the ball in his hands and he knows that Kobe's about to finish the game that the way that it should. Yeah, that was a great call. I thought so. And, and the one thing I like that they didn't spend a ton of time on, I'm glad they didn't, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it either, is I don't think Michael Jordan pushed off. Seeing that play over and over and over again from every single angle, from up close, from far away, he had his hand on his hip. Yes, it did not look like he shoved him. It looked like Russell was already going that way. He was actually already tripping and falling when Jordan crossed him up. I don't think that Jordan gave him a shove. I absolutely agree. There was no shove. That's just the way that Russell's body was taking him. So I think that it looks bad to some people, to the people that want it to look bad, but it's an amazing shot and an amazing way to end MJ's Bulls career. There's no way whatsoever that's a push-off. He's already falling. He's already slipping. His hand's just there. Who mentions that it wasn't a push and it's like that he was already losing it? Was it Bob Costit? Who was it? I can't remember who it was, but it was just like the equivalent of like a doorman just like putting his hand on your head. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't touch him at all. I mean, obviously, Jazz fans are going to be sour and scream push off and things like that. But I think anybody who, who is has an impartial view of the situation can clearly tell that there's no actual pressure of his hand on his hip or backside. And there's no actual force that's distributed from Michael to Brian Russell. So I just don't see it. He's already falling from the sheer crossover and just dead stop Michael hits on him so I think that's what it was and like you said I you know it's a shame that you got to spend so much time on this because this is one of the biggest arguments of all time and I just don't see the side for the argument that he did push off I can't see after all of that film and like you said all the angles how anybody can think he actually physically pushed off from him yeah, if the officials don't call Reggie Miller for his, you can't call MJ for this. Exactly. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I did like that the anti-Pistons, basically, Carl Malone gets on the Bulls team bus and shakes hands with everybody after losing. Yeah, he's a, a super stand-up guy. You know, I think him and Stockton are both seen as super nice guys. So for both of them to show out and play as hard as they can, and then after losing, they're going to go ahead and shake MJ's hand. It's... It's like you said, it's anti-piston for sure. I think it just is more of a test to how great Carl Malone really is as a person. I think we all kind of saw him as a big kind of cuddly bear, and that's who he was during his playing career and things like that. And he was always, like Jesse mentioned, just a stand-up guy. And that's just a great thing to see. Honestly, I love that. It makes me like Carl Malone even more. I did like that during the rally, Phil Jackson finally thanks Jerry Krause, says, hey, thank you, Jerry Krause, for putting this team together. Scottie Pippen says in the documentary that Jerry Krause deserves the credit for this. He put this team together. And I I thought we've been talking about this now for nine episodes and Jerry Krause wanting the credit. And here are these two guys at the very end of the dance saying, hey, thanks for putting this dance together. And you don't question all of these two very well-educated men were getting in on some super sarcastic takes in front of all of Chicago at the parade, saying, oh, it's, it's all Jerry. He's the one that did it, guys. I don't think so at all. Either do I, especially because Scotty, during his talking head, says he calls Jerry Krause the greatest GM of all time. 
And again, I think you have to give the guy his respect. Is he a, a piece of shit who weaseled his way out of probably a seventh championship? Yeah. Did he want more credit than he got? Yeah. But is he a bad guy for wanting his due credit? No, I don't think so. I think he went about it the wrong way. But I mean, you have to give him the respect for the team he built and the way he built it over that. I mean, God, they were such an incredible team for 10 fucking years. The thing that really boggled my mind after that was they talked about how Jerry Reinsdorf said to Phil Jackson, like, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come back and try to win a seventh. Like, you guys deserve to come back and defend your title. Like, I'm not going to push you out. And one of the things I liked, one, is that Phil Jackson said that would not be fair to Jerry Krause. And he's right. Like, that would totally undermine Jerry Krause and everything he's been saying all year. And so I thought that that was nice of Phil Jackson, who probably didn't like Jerry Krause, to just say, listen, the right thing to do here, because it would really undermine your general manager, is for me to walk away and not have you step over him and give me the job. I thought that was really great. And then I also, of course, you guys can talk about Michael Jordan watching this video and being just pissed. Like, you know, I would have come back on a one-year deal. Rodman would have come back. He had a one-year left on his deal. Phil would have come back on a one-year deal. You know, Scotty would have taken some, some convincing, but I could have had him come back. Like, he was just pissed to see that there actually was that opportunity to come back for a seventh year. Yeah, I think that specifically when we talk about Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson, Jerry Krause mentioned at the beginning of the season that Phil could have gone 82-0 and and he wasn't coming back. So I think when you start the season with that type of sour tone, Phil Jackson is, is a super bright guy. He's going to hold on to that. He's going to resent that. And no matter how the season ended, I don't think he wanted to play under Jerry Krause either. I don't think they had mutual respect for each other. So it was very stand-up and mature for him to have the, the take that he had. But I think even MJ mentioned, you know, after looking at the iPad, he said, no, 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 this couldn't have happened because of what Jerry Krause said. He shouldn't have said that. He can't start the season that way. But, oh, man, were you right? He was looking at that and saying that oh, he really hated going out knowing that he still has, you know, something left in the tank, that he wasn't lost for the game. And, you know, he knows that Phil would have came back for one more and he would have came back for one more and Pip would have came back for one more. So we talk about that 99 season that was shortened because of the strike. They played 50 regular season games. That would have been so good for those Bulls veterans. And I think that they probably could have really made a very great run at that seventh title, that historic seven and nine. You know, we mentioned sarcastic remarks and things like that. And I think the remark of, that wouldn't be fair to Jerry, I I think was kind of said in a little bit of jest and a little bit of of prodding and poking that, hey, look, this guy opened his fucking mouth at the beginning of the season and said, it didn't matter what I did, I was done. So it'd be unfair for you to not take your GMs, you know, kind of like that, not necessarily respecting the guy or something. But God, you can only imagine if they would have been able to put that together. You made a great point. That was a shortened season. That would have been huge for them. They probably would have won another title. And does it change much? I don't think it does. You know, I don't think them winning seven really changes anything in the legacy. Maybe for Kerr and the young, and the other guys, maybe. But Michael's still the greatest. Phil's still the greatest. I, I don't think any it really changes with seven, except for them and their personal things, you know? Now, what do you think? This is one of the things I put down as a note is... I don't know if Michael's had a chance to really look back and reflect. I know he put this whole documentary together. This has all been under his watchful eye. So I'm not sure how much in life he actually has had to sit back and reflect. But I wonder when he looks back to like losing to the Pistons for the last time before they won that first one, they, and he's lost now back-to-back to the Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals, if that guy could have ever imagined winning six. Like, you just lost to the Pistons, your heart's completely shredded, and the idea, like, listen, buddy, don't worry about it. You're going to win six of these things. 
I'm sure for a guy like Jordan, you know, his expectations and his dreams, they blew up on probably a yearly basis where the heights that he thought he was going to reach, they tripled so often because of the places that he put himself, the opportunities that he made for himself by hitting shots and driving his teams to success from the collegiate level to the Olympic level and then on to that Bulls dynasty. Yeah, like Jesse mentioned, Michael's a special breed. He always thought he was going to win. I don't think he ever thought, man, I just lost these two. I'm never going to get there. I don't think that thought ever crossed his mind. I just don't think he has that in him. At the same time, I mean, the kid just worked harder than anybody we've seen come through the NBA in a long time. And that's why he was so great. He put the time in. And that's with every great person. you got to put the time in. So that's the series. We've wrapped up 10 episodes now. I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, but we've got 10 episodes in. I really want to circle back, obviously, like I do every episode, and just say, you know, visit us on Facebook at Infinity Sports Podcast or type in FBAS Podcast. Visit rtfsportsnetwork.com and vote for Facebook All Sports for Show of the Month. Check out the blogs while you're on there. They're very great pieces. I just submitted one today. It should be up right now as I'm talking. It's all about Brian Taylor, the biggest baseball prospect in the history of the game of baseball. And visit us on Instagram at Infinity Sports Podcast. We're definitely looking forward to interaction with anybody. Any ideas that you guys have, any feedback, good or bad, I think bad would actually be even better for us, but good or bad, we'll take it. Yeah, one of the places you guys can always find us is Twitter. We're all active on there, and we do have a chance to represent the Infinity Sports Podcast on there as well. You know, I was actually live tweeting for most of that Bulls game that ESPN was re-airing. So interact with us on there. But any any media where you are actually listening to us, they have a way for you to rate and subscribe and review us. So please take the opportunity to tell us how we're doing, how we can do better, and give us all the stars that you can. Yeah, thank you, everybody. You know, we really appreciate all the support, first and foremost. It's it's pure love from this end, and we really appreciate it. Don't forget iTunes, Stitcher, all the platforms, RTF Sports Network. Anytime you're on there listening to us, rate, review, please. Anytime, like like, uh, Wayne mentioned, all comments are appreciated. The negative ones more than the positive ones, to be honest with you. You know, we want to work and perfect our craft and do what we do better, and the only way we're going to know is if you guys tell us. So don't be shy. Get on in there. Jesse, you want to take it home this week? Uh, I'd love to, but Kenny seems to be rushing me off. What's going on, Kenny? It's-